adequately? Up higher on me. Is that better? No. Then this one I think isn't working. Is that work? Yes. <laughs> we spent the last uh, two days going through the, the Buddha's first discourse in which he turned the wheel of Dhamma. He set in motion what he had understood and began to articulate it as a form of life as a practice, to those who sought inspiration, understanding, a way of being in this world. And yet the Buddha we can see is breaking quite radically with the religious culture of his time and arguably is breaking with a great deal of what we might loosely call intuitive religion. Namely, a search for meaning and truth that posits as almost something indispensable the notion of something, be it God or mind, that stands outside the conditional world. He opens up, therefore, um, another way of being with the conditioned phenomena that rise and pass away. And this perhaps finds its most um, vivid expression in his notion of a path. We saw yesterday how this process starts with the fully knowing of dukkha, of suffering and all of the implications of that in terms of impermanence, unreliability and so on, and deeply encountering those truths in a still, focused, unflinching awareness that then has the effect of transforming our relationship to life itself, particularly in the dropping away of certain habits, patterns of mind, attachments, fears, hatreds, to the point where we begin to open up a perspective that is no longer governed by those impulses, urges, forces. And instead, we come to discover another way of being in the world. And this is not a way of being in the world that is exclusively concerned with being more spiritual or more inward or more aloof or detached, but it has to do with the way of life that incorporates and integrates all aspects of our humanity from the way we see the world and ourselves and others the way we reflect and think, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work. And on that ethical foundation, the way we deepen our commitment, our resolve, our effort, 
the way we pay attention and focus our awareness. And the Buddha called this uh, Marga Bhavana, the cultivation or the creation of a path. The word Bhavana is a very central and crucial one. Unfortunately, it's often translated nowadays as meditation or as mental development, which again gives a rather um, exclusive priority to inward spiritual work. Whereas the Buddha understood bhavana as a practice that engages all aspects of this path. Bhavana literally means uh, to bring something into being. And we can understand this both as creating something, I think in many respects when applied to the idea of a path as a whole, we're constantly called upon or challenged to create an open and free and present still space in the heart of our lives from moment to moment. But in many respects it might be more useful to think of this as cultivation, as something we do um, bring into being through practice, through familiarity, through deepening, such that our view of the world, our thinking, our speech, our action, our work are cultivated. They're allowed to grow, they're allowed to mature, they're nurtured. It's also worth pointing out that in the model of the Eightfold Path, there is no explicit split or distinction between the inner and the outer, or theory and practice, which is very often a model in which um, we find ourselves speaking of Buddhist practice today, engaged Buddhism. For all of the importance, I think, of that idea, in some weird ways, reinforces that sense of split. There's the engaged part of our practice, and then by implication, the one that is rather disengaged. I think we need to not assume that split. The Buddha certainly does not. But to recognize within our particular um, lives, at particular moments in our lives, given our temperaments, that we'll find ourselves moving and embodying our practice in different ways, in different forms, and not to privilege one over the other, but to see this as an integral approach. What I want to, today, well, what I want to do today um, is to uh, consider how the Buddha saw his practice as one that is uh, entirely um, concerned with our working on a day-to-day -day basis, is entirely concerned with how we live this life in this world. And I'm going to read a number of passages and reflect on them to, again, further develop this thread of a secular understanding of what the Buddha was doing. The first passage comes from the Vedana Sangyutta, the Connected Discourses on Feeling. It's tucked away 
at the back of the Sangyutta Nikaya, the collection of connected uh, discourses, um, page 1278, if you're interested. <laughs> I'm not the sort of thing one's liable to get that far with in reading that book. This concerns a dialogue between um, a wandering ascetic called Shivaka, who comes to the Buddha and he says, Master Gautama, there are some ascetics and Brahmins who hold a doctrine and view such as this. Whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful or neither pleasant nor painful, all that is caused by actions done in the past. What does Master Gautama say about this? Now, what is striking about that question is that that, in fact, is, in most orthodox schools of Buddhism, the official view, that everything we experience, whether it be pleasant or painful or neutral, is the consequence of our past karma, our past actions. Remember, karma, which is a word that comes loaded with all sorts of complicated and confused baggage, simply means action. Kama vipaka means action effect. We often think of kama, though, as a kind of fate. My kama. My karma. As though somehow there is a kind of uh, history of endless past actions that come to fruition in my life and there's really not much I can do about it. So here this monk, uh, this uh, wanderer is saying, well, what does Master Gautama say? Is that, is that your teaching? This is how the Buddha replies. He says, some feelings, Shivaka, arise originating from bile disorders some from phlegm disorders, some from wind disorders, some from an imbalance of the three, some produced by change of climate, some by careless behavior, some by assault, and some as the result of actions. Now, and then he continues, that some feelings arise here originating from bile disorders, and then he lists all the others, one can know for oneself, and that is considered to be true in the world. Now, when those ascetics and Brahmins hold such a doctrine and view as well, whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, all that is caused by actions done in the past, they overshoot what one knows by oneself, and they overshoot what is considered to be true in the world. Therefore I say that it is wrong on the part of those ascetics and Brahmins to make such a claim. Now this passage um, inevitably gives a lot of uh, problems for orthodox uh, Buddhist doctrine. And if you read um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, and I'm reading Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation here. 
in his footnote to this, he goes on at some length to try to explain how this is not incompatible with the official view. This is a very good example of a passage that somehow jars and shocks when you read it precisely because it conflicts with the orthodox view. And in terms of um, uh, te textual criticism, uh, historical textual criticism, it's, it, there would be considerable um, weight to consider this passage as, uh, as perhaps a remnant of something that has survived from a very early period. Of course, it also accords with my own views. I'm not disputing that, and I'm aware that I'm bringing my own biases to this text too, and I need to be conscious of that. But I think if we look in terms of this current or this thread within the teachings, where the Buddha is clearly going against the stream of traditional Indian thought, and of course we find in the Upanishads, already well established, the idea of how one's station in life, one's rebirth, is the result of one's actions committed in the past. That is part of the world view. So here he seems to be again going against the stream. What's striking is that he doesn't, um, uh, instead of ascribing everything in our experience to our past karma or actions, he recognizes that the bulk of what we experience can be um, understood in terms of our physical health. Bile, phlegm, wind are the three humors in Ayurvedic or classical Indian medicine. And the idea of health in that system is by uh, maintaining a balance of those three humors. Tibetan medicine follows this to today, this model. Climate, careless behavior, assault, all of which are aspects of our life in this world. But, of course, he also acknowledges that what we experience is the result of our actions. He's not denying that, but he's seeing that that is one of a number of factors that contributes to how we come about to experience what we're experiencing now. To reductively say it's all due to karma is, as he says, it's, it goes, um, it overshoots what one knows by oneself and it overshoots what is considered to be true in the world. Now that passage is also very telling because it sets out a criteria for knowledge. He seems to be saying, by implication, that um, the quality of our experience is something that we can know for ourselves. And it's something that we can learn from what is known in the world. We do not need, therefore, to appeal to some metaphysical theory in order to have such an explanation. So once again, we have a passage which supports the idea of a this-worldly account of the Buddha's practice, of the Eightfold Path, one that breaks parts company with a view of human life based in some metaphysical scheme. 
the doctrine of karma is, in terms of how it functions both uh, individually and socially, really not much different from the belief in God. In fact, karma serves in Asian Buddhist societies or Hindu societies much in the same way that God can be called in in a, in a monotheistic sense. In other words, if, let's say, a couple give birth to a child with severe um, difficulties, learning difficulties or, or, or physical difficulties, a devout Buddhist parent will say, well, we don't understand this. It must be the result of their previous karma. A devout Christian family or Muslim family will say, well, we don't understand this, but it must be the will of God. In both cases, you are able to render something um, unintelligible by appealing to a metaphysical doctrine. The the, the, the apparent uh, uh, strength of these theories is that they uh, can explain anything. That's one of the reasons I found the doctrine of karma initially so attractive. Why was Mozart born as a musical genius? <laughs> because of what he did in past life. Um, it, it's a wonderfully attractive idea, but when you think about it, it actually has extraordinarily weak explanatory power, something that explains everything. In fact, in some ways, explains nothing. It just pushes back the reason to something that the traditions recognize we can never actually know. Classical Buddhism acknowledges that the, the, the law of karma is something that only the omniscient mind of a Buddha can understand. In other words, again, the will of God is something that is beyond our comprehension. And again, what is striking in the passage is the Buddha is saying, no, we can understand these things in terms of what we can know ourselves and what is known widely in the world. He's putting, he's shifting the emphasis back to trying to understand these things in more immediate empirical terms. The weakness of the God and the karma theories is if we take that on board, then we'll be less motivated to try to exact, find out, for example, the reasons for, let's say, the physical deformity of a child, or the origins of certain illnesses, or why um, people have such extreme disparities of, um, of wealth and poverty and justice and injustice in the world. If it's all due to karma, if it's all due to God, then that's just the way it is. There is a, uh, a potential for a kind of uh, passivity and stagnation in such metaphysical views. The Buddha seems to be breaking with that. Perhaps the, um, perhaps the most um, uh, explicit uh, uh, way in which the Buddha addresses this topic concerns uh, the distinction between what he calls the undeclared and the declared. In other words, what it is that he does not declare or speak about or give an opinion on and what it is that he does speak about and give an opinion on. Traditionally, 
um, we find the, uh, the, the 10 undeclared propositions uh, repeated as a stock passage in many texts. Let me just tell you what they are. These are the things the Buddha refused to comment on. Whether the world is eternal or whether the world is not eternal. Whether the world is finite or whether the world is infinite. Whether the soul is the same as the body or whether the soul is one thing and the body another. Whether after death a Tathagata, a Buddha, exists or does not exist, or both exists and does not exist, or neither exists nor does not exist. <laughs> now here we have, um, in summary, um, what we might consider the big difficult questions, which in some respects are all still with us today. Does the universe have a beginning? Does it have an end? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Our, and then, then we have what we still call today the mind-body problem. Are mind and body the same? Are they different? So the Buddha seems to be addressing here um, uh, those questions that are of a, of a metaphysical nature. They certainly were a, of a metaphysical nature at his time. Some of these issues now may be answered in terms of astrophysics and so on. But nonetheless, the Buddha is saying to get drawn into these kinds of questions, these kinds of speculations, is not conducive to the practice of the Eightfold Path, or the spiritual life, as he calls it. That is the reason he gives for not, or one reason he gives, for not... Um, uh, addressing these questions. Because if you get into this kind of stuff, the mind can go on more or less endlessly speculating and debating and agreeing and disagreeing. Let me give you an example of how um, this doctrine or these, these points um, come, uh, are addressed in, in context. This is from the Udana, a text I cited yesterday. It, 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 I'll just read it out. At that time, there were a number of recluses and Brahmins, wanderers of various sects, living around Savati. And they were of various views, of various beliefs, of various opinions, and they relied for their support on their various views. In other words, they made their living out of promoting certain doctrines and ideologies. There were some recluses and Brahmins who asserted and held the view the world is eternal and others that the world is not eternal and so on and so forth. And they lived quarrelsome, disputatious and wrangling, wounding each other with verbal darts, saying the Dhamma is like this, the Dhamma is not like that. Now, um, this gives rise um, to a bit of a puzzle. We can understand how these recluses and Brahmins would argue amongst themselves as to whether the world is eternal or not eternal, finite or infinite, whether the soul and the body are the same or different. But why 
would recluses and Brahmins of various sects be discussing whether the Buddha exists after death or does not exist after death, or both or neither? What interest would they have in this other teacher's future after his death? I've always found uh, these last four in this list as decidedly suspect, fishy. They don't seem to ring with the same uh, uh, tone as the other ones. They're not universal metaphysical questions. They are, in fact, a very specific question raised um, within the context of the Buddhist community. Now, the, the commentator on this text, in the Pali commentator, recognizes this problem and says, well, actually, these various recluses and Brahmins were not discussing here whether the Tathagata exists or not after death. They were discussing whether the self exists or not after death. In other words, whether or not there is rebirth. Another problem with, these, with whether a Tathagata exists after death or not is that have we not seen, in fact, only yesterday, <laughs> where the Buddha says at the conclusion of the first discourse, he says, this is the last birth. There is no more repeated existence. He's made it really rather clear. There is no existence or rebirth for the Tathagata after death. So why would that be a big question anyway? It seems to me that the later Buddhist uh, compilers of the canon um, have removed a question that they do not want left undeclared. They need, for a number of reasons, to be able to affirm that, yes, after death you will be reborn. They don't want to leave that as an open or let's say an undeclared question which does not conduce to the spiritual life. The Buddha, though, it seemed, did. Likewise, when we, if, we, if, we, if, if, we, if we consider replacing the last four with the soul, uh, does the soul exist after death or does the soul not exist after death? Soul, by the way, here is jiva, it's not atman. It means something like the life principle, something that goes on. Then we would have the world is eternal, the world is not eternal, which has to do with temporality in time. The world is finite, the world is infinite, which has to do with spatiality in space. The soul is the same as bo the body, the soul is the one thing and the body is another, which has to do with space. The soul exists after death, the soul does not exist after death, which has to do with time. In other words, we have a perfect symmetry, which is completely lost when we get into this business of the Tathagata existing and not existing and so on. So I would argue that in fact uh, the Buddha left, regarded the question of rebirth as something he did not declare anything about. That is certainly a possibility. But, of course, the bulk of the canon teaches and suggests and implies and requires belief in rebirth. I'm not denying that. 
but you can see here a struggle, a tension. Another problem is that although the Buddha refused to declare on whether the soul or the animating principle, whatever it might be, is the same or different from the body, pretty much every Buddhist school has opted for a mind-body dualism. Physical death, mind or something of that order continues. So in fact, dualism has entered into much of orthodox mainstream Buddhism, though the Buddha himself refused to make any statement about that. In some Theravada teachings, they are true to this, but they say that at death, what continues um, is the momentum of the five aggregates altogether, not just a bit of them. But that leaves, again, all manner of enormous uh, difficulty. I mean, how does that actually work? Uh, when I die, and then in the next moment, I'm an accountant in Zambia, or whatever it might be. <laughs> how did I get there? How did I cross time and space? So let's leave that rather technical question aside for the moment and look at how the Buddha responds to this um, description of these wrangling Brahmins and so on. And he's told that you know, they're having these metaphysical arguments and he says, okay, <clears throat> formerly monks, there was a king in Sravasti, which is the city, and the king said to one of his um, uh, officials, bring together all those persons in the city who have been blind from birth. So that's the official does. He gathers these uh, blind men, maybe women. And then the king says, okay, now show them an elephant. And so to some of the blind men, uh, the official presented the head of the elephant saying, this is an elephant. To some he showed the tusk, others the trunk, the body, the foot, the hindquarters, the tail, the tuft at the end of the tail. And then the king said, okay, blind men, what's an elephant? What's an elephant like? And the ones who had been shown the head of the elephant said, the elephant's just like a water jar. Those shown the ear said, the elephant is just like a winnowing basket. The tusk, the elephant is like a plowshare. The trunk, like a plow pole. The body, like a storeroom. The foot or the leg, like a post. The hindquarters, and I suspect this is a polite way of saying the anus, an elephant is just like a mortar. The tail, an elephant is like a pestle. The tuft of the tail, the elephant's just like a broom. And so the blind men saying, an elephant's like this, an elephant's not like that. They fought each other with their fists and the king was delighted with the spectacle. <laughs> Now, um, how does this relate to the um, disputes, the metaphysical disputes that these people were having? The Buddha seems to be saying that if one becomes preoccupied with a certain metaphysical conviction or belief, that prevents you from seeing the big picture, the whole picture. That the Dhamma is the whole elephant, and I think it's interesting that he, 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 he picks uh, the example of a, um, 
of a living organism, a large living organism, that is not reducible, that cannot be understood by reducing it to any of its parts. As soon as you do that, you miss the whole picture. If we think of the elephant, perhaps, as the contingently arising and vanishing phenomenal world, which again is something vital, something living, something one can almost say um, alive, in the same way that an elephant is alive, and is complex, and is multiple, and is uh, diverse, and is irreducible to any particular bit of it, then again it points to how the engagement of this practice, this eightfold path, with all of its different aspects again, is one that is concerned with the complex relationship we have with life in its totality. If we start believing, as in the example of the karma, that everything is the result of our previous actions, or if we become preoccupied with differentiating the spiritual or the, the mental uh, bit from the physical part, or whether we get caught up into questions of where did this all come from and where is it all going, then in doing so, we will then um, compromise our engagement with the totality of life as it's unfolding in all of the dimensions of our experience, from the way we see and think and speak and act and work, we'll lose sight of the bigger picture. So the Dhamma, um, so the problem with these uh, views is that they reduce and limit one's um, experience of the whole. And one might nowadays take that um, as a way of reflecting on certain ways in which Buddhism is presented. Buddhism is about meditation. The highest teaching of the Buddha is to uh, experience uh, some, uh, some uh, uh, un fundamental consciousness. And I feel this is a very um, uh, deeply seated, perhaps instinctive way of finding uh, comfort and um, intelligibility in what is otherwise sometimes an overwhelmingly complex, painful, mysterious life. We seek refuge in, in, a, in a single practice or a single doctrine or a particular belief or a particular form of spiritual exercise. And that becomes our practice. In fact, I think very, if, if one were to do a kind of experiment and instead of blind men were to bring, say, half a dozen Buddhist practitioners and line them up and say, what's your practice? My hunch is that the knee-jerk response would be, well, my practice is Vipassana, or my practice is Zen, or my practice is Dogchen, or my practice is whatever. In other words, it seems... Uh, natural and somehow correct to think of one's practice as reducible to one privileged, usually spiritual exercise, which is certainly not what the Buddha taught. The path, the Eightfold Path, encompasses the whole of us and all of it is to be bhavanad, cultivated, 
practiced, brought into being. And very likely this problem was already there at the time of the Buddha. The story we gave yesterday about Sati the fisherman's son, who wants to um, make the teaching of some kind of consciousness that goes from life to life as really what matters most. The Buddha says, no deluded man. Don't go there. That'll cause you a lot of trouble. But this is not the only way in which the Buddha deals with this uh, problem of um, holding on to metaphysical belief. I'd like to give another example, and this it comes from a text called the uh, Malunkya Putta Sutta, which is, um, oh, I don't have the number here. It's in the middle length sayings. I think it's 63, I'm not entirely sure. Now, this is um, <clears throat> a story of a man called Malunkya Putta. Now, in another passage, in, another, in the Sanyutta Nikaya, Malunkya Putta is an elderly man. He might already have been elderly here. And he comes to the Buddha and he says, if the Buddha does not declare these things to me, in other words, whether the world is eternal, not eternal, and so on, then um, it, it, only if the Buddha were to declare to me these things, then and only then will I lead the spiritual life under him. If he does not, then I will just abandon the training. In other words, unless you deliver on these basic metaphysical propositions, then I'm leaving. And this is the Buddha's response, and I'll read it out in full. Suppose, Malunkya Putta, a man were wounded by an arrow, thickly smeared with poison, and his friends brought a surgeon to treat him. And the man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and clan of the man who wounded me whether the man who wounded me was tall or short or of medium height, whether he was dark or brown or golden-skinned, whether he lives in such and such a village or town or city, whether I know, until whether I know the, the bow that wounded me was a longbow or a crossbow, whether the bow string was of, of fiber or reed or sinew or hemp or bark, whether the shaft of that arrow was wild or cultivated, whether the feathers of the shaft belong to a vulture or a crow or a hawk or a peacock or a stork, until I know what kind of arrow it was that wounded me, whether it was hoof-tipped or curved or barbed or calf-toothed or oleander. <laughs> you can feel the Buddha is got, I feel, a rather wicked sense of humor. <laughs> He's teasing this out to such absurdity that the point becomes abundantly clear. All this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile he would die. So too, Malunkya Putta, if anyone should say, I will not lead the spiritual life under the Buddha until the Buddha declares to me the world is eternal, not eternal, finite, infinite, the soul is one thing, the body is another, or the soul and the body are the same, and in my reading, there is the, the, the soul exists after death or does not exist after death, then all that would still remain undeclared, and meanwhile, that person would die. 
Malunki Putra, if there is the view, the world is eternal and so on, the spiritual life cannot be lived. Whether there is the view, wherever there is this view, there is birth, there is aging, there is death, there is sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, the destruction of which I prescribe here and now. Now this is a very famous passage, I'm sure most of you have probably heard it in one form or another. And um, what it um, points to is that the primary thrust of the Buddha's teaching is pragmatic and therapeutic. It has to do not with understanding how the arrow got into us in the first place, which will lead to endless speculation, but rather how to get the arrow out. That is the issue. In other words, if we start, as the Buddha clearly starts, with, with dukkha, with fully knowing dukkha, then that is the issue at hand. The question, therefore, is to find a means or a method to address the question of dukkha, whether that be um, existential dukkha, in other words, this sort of primary sense of unease or anguish we experience through being in a conditioned world, in an impermanent world, or whether it be, we could even extend this, I think, to, um, to what we would nowadays call physical or psychological pain. The issue is how can we treat these things? How can we heal these things? How can we address them? And again, we saw in the passage from the Upanishads how this is very much um, an approach that does not accord with the emphasis in the Vedantic tradition, which is really about uh, seeking refuge and bliss in the absorption with something outside the conditioned world, Brahman, Atman, rather than turning one's attention to the primacy of human suffering. And I think we have a foundation here um, for um, a way of uh, life, and I don't even particularly like the word spiritual, that also skews it somewhat, um, that is primarily concerned not so much with knowing how the world is in some philosophical or metaphysical sense, but attending to the issue of suffering at, at all levels, existential, psychological, physical, and nowadays, I think, of particularly great importance, um, global and environmental, social and political. Suffering occurs at all levels of our experience. It's true that one, when the Buddha's teaching is framed within the metaphysics of ancient India, priority is given to um, getting to the root of suffering. In other words, that which causes repeated rebirth. But if, as we're doing in this course, or as I am suggesting to you, that we suspend or bracket the ancient Indian worldview, then the whole issue of suffering 
is cast in another light. It's cast in the light of our immediate open encounter with it in this world, in this body, here and now. How do I understand the causes of suffering? And again, I think once we suspend the multi-life view, when we look at, for example, that passage about karma, what can I understand and what can be known in the world, then the question comes for seeking the causes of these sufferings through our own investigation, our own experience, uh, the research and the um, insights gained by generations of philosophers, doctors, healers, physicians, and so on, each in its own way working towards the resolution of suffering. So I, we have here a, a foundation um, not for engaged Buddhism, which I, as a term I'm not too fond of, but rather a practice of being in this world that takes as its starting point the issue of suffering and pain. And a culture that might emerge out of those who are working primarily with that would be something that would be the consequence of communities putting into practice the Eightfold Path in all its aspects. The Buddha um, often uh, refers to himself as a physician, um, as a doctor, uh, as a healer, rather than uh, as a, a teacher who has somehow gained privileged access into the nature of reality. He talks of his Dhamma, as I mentioned yesterday, his teaching, his practices, as like medicine, as courses of treatment. In other words, there's no higher teaching or lower teaching in this regard. There's no hierarchy of medicines. It all has to do with which particular aspect of suffering one is addressing at a given time. What's appropriate? Very much a teaching of what's appropriate. One of my favorite Zen dialogues concerns the 9th century Chinese Zen master Yunmen, who is asked, what is the highest teaching of the Buddha and the patriarchs? And he answers, an appropriate statement. Which again goes against our tendency to think there must be some teaching, the teaching of emptiness or the teaching of Mahamudra or the teaching of whatever it might be, that is somehow one notch above all the others. All of us probably have this idea that we want to be practicing the best and most advanced practice there is. And unfortunately, Buddhist tradition has bought into that and presents the teachings very often in that way. And that, I think, is a great mistake. I think it, 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 uh, it gets into competitiveness in uh, sectarianism and so on. And the Sangha for the Buddha, in other words, those who are um, committed to a comparable set of values, technically the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, 
are those who support us in this process of healing. The Buddha compares them to nursing staff. <laughs> so um, we have a very explicit statement, therefore, that what the Buddha is concerned with is therapy. Not therapy in the limited notion of psychotherapy, but therapy as healing. And pragmatism, in the sense that what he regards as true is not what corresponds to some ultimate reality, but what is true is what works towards creating a better future, both individually and socially and communally. And in that sense, I think the Buddha is in some ways a precursor of people like John Dewey and Richard Rorty, if any of you are familiar with American philosophy. So this, the Buddha makes very clear in this example. Um, and then at the end of the sutta, um, he says to Malunkyaputta, Therefore, Malunkyaputta, remember what I have left undeclared as undeclared, and remember what I have declared as declared. And what have I declared? This is suffering, I have declared. This is the origin of suffering, I have declared. This is the cessation of suffering, I have declared. This is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. In other words, the four truths. Often that bit is left out when we hear the story of the arrow. But that's the counter-image stated explicitly. The Buddha does not declare on matters of metaphysical truth or falsity. Mind-body distinctions, I would argue rebirth. He's not denying, he's not affirming. He's saying these things are not the concern of what my Dhamma is about. My Dhamma is about fully knowing Dukkha, letting go of craving, experiencing cessation, and cultivating a path. It couldn't be clearer. And why have I declared that, he said? Because it is beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the Brahmacharya, the spiritual life. It leads to disengagement, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to Nibbana. That is why I've declared it. There's a, this character Malunkyaputta appears again um, on page 1175 of the Sangyutta Nikaya, i.e. tucked away again in the back of a big, big text. Um, Malunkiputta was, in fact, the son of a minister of King Pasenadi um, and seems to have come to the Buddha quite late in life. And at some other occasion, we don't know when, the chronology is lost, then the aged Malunkiputta approached the Buddha and said to him, Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Buddha would teach me the Dhamma in brief, so that I might dwell alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent, and resolute. 
And this is the Buddha's answer. Here, Malunkyaputta, regarding things seen, heard, sensed, and cognized by you, in the seen, there will be merely the seen. In the heard, there will be merely the heard. In the sensed, there will be merely the sensed. In the cognized, there will be merely the cognized. Uh, This is again a fairly famous passage, although it's usually cited from the Udana in reference to an ascetic called Bahya. It's the same text. I find it, though, rather telling that it is also taught to this man, Malunkyaputta, who basically wasn't going to follow the Buddha unless he could be given answers to these metaphysical truths. And in the end, he accepts the Buddha's analogy of the arrow and then humbly says, okay, then what should I do? I'm old. Now, this passage has given rise to to a lot of interpretations. And I'm not going to say that my interpretation is is the right one. But again, what we can see here is this emphasis on the primacy of immediate experience. In the heard, in the seen, there is merely the seen. In the heard, there is merely or just the heard. In the sense, there is just the sensed. In the cognized, there is just the cognized. Now, the, the key word here is merely or just. In other words, can we be in this immediate sensory, cognitive, and I would add also perhaps felt experience, without in interposing all the baggage of metaphysical belief. Can we be here in a raw, immediate encounter with what is changing, with what is painful, with what is not self? Again, it's this shift from being delighting and reveling in one's place. And we looked at place as constituting not just one's regional identity or one's social position, but also one's religious beliefs, one's metaphysical assumptions, one's views and opinions. By moving to this ground, this conditioned arising, we're we're letting go, we're dispensing with our dependence on our positions, our views, our opinions, and meeting the world, meeting the other person with, an, with a still and open and fully conscious awareness as the basis from which we can then respond to them from a deeper depth, not conditioned by greed and hatred and delusion. Then, Malunkyaputta, you will not be of that. When you are not of that, then you will not be in that. When you are not in that, then you will be neither here nor hereafter nor in between the two. And this is the end of suffering. So, again, this passage is is rather tricky. Um, I would understand it as basically being that when we can uh, be with this world and be with this experience without being 
pushed and pulled by our emotional attachments, our fears, our hatreds, our opinions, our beliefs, then we're no longer, as it were, entangled in that world. We're no longer somehow identifying with it in a specific way, as being me or mine would be crucial. And that leads us to a middle way, one in which we're neither here nor hereafter. We're not obsessed with the present moment, we're not obsessed with some future result, and nor somewhere in between. This is very reminiscent of some of the um, ideas of Nagarjuna, this uh, emptiness. Again, emptiness is a problematic term, largely because it's a noun, and we think of it as some kind of subtle thing or state. But remember that Nagarjuna describes emptiness not so much as um, a state at all, but rather as a way of letting go. He says, Buddhas teach that emptiness is letting go of opinions. Those who believe in emptiness are incurable. Again, I think the fact that he uses a medical analogy is again important. Whatever kind of belief of such a nature that we cling to, even to the idea of emptiness or no self, can likewise be another kind of attachment, another kind of closing down, another kind of metaphysics. So rather than think of this emptiness or this no-self as a state, we need to think of it as the letting go of opinions, the falling away of fixed ideas, a process rather than a state. And we'll end here. Uh, Tomorrow I'm going to um, look at uh, a topic that many of, well, some of you have asked me to address, and that is the this idea of Buddha, Buddha nature, and um, I'll also ro- offer some thoughts on how the Buddha uh, related to the concept of God. I think the two are related. Thank you very much. <laughs>